Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, listeners. With Halloween behind us, grocery stores have set out candy canes, and my own sister-in-law decorated her house for Christmas yesterday. For me, I am not yet ready for the December holidays, mainly because I really believe there should be an entire season devoted to celebrating Thanksgiving. And in that spirit, I am re-releasing one of my favorite episodes ever, this interview with Paul Kelly Turkey Farmer. You should know that while the entire flock of Kelly Brown's turkeys in the UK has already been sold for Christmas, Kelly Brown's recently expanded into the US. We're going to talk about this year. And there are Thanksgiving turkeys still available here in the US. Contact information is available right in the show notes. I'm excited to cook my first Kelly Brown's this season, thanks to their generosity. You can follow that experience in Instagram stories. If you cook a Kelly Bronze this year after listening to this episode, please let me know. Okay, here we go. Kelly Bronze turkeys have been the centerpiece of the royal family's Christmas dinner and have been specially requested by dignitaries as far as Dubai. But it wasn't always this way. In fact, there was a time when the Kelly family was in dire straits financially. The turkey market was oversaturated. And as far as prices... Well, as Paul says, it was a race to the bottom. Paul and his parents became the laughing stock of the turkey industry when they traveled the UK buying every non-genetically modified turkey they could find and decided to rear the turkeys according to their natural life cycle. Most shocking of all, the Kelly family allowed their turkeys to live and roam in the great outdoors. This is really a great success story, but beyond that, Paul is truly a great storyteller. Not everyone could make the history and life cycle of turkeys interesting, but I promise you will be hanging on Paul's every nugget of knowledge and laughing all the way through. Oh, and P.S. Paul did not give me a turkey recipe to try. He gave me one of the most adventurous, challenging recipes I've made for the podcast thus far. His mother's steak and kidney steamed pudding. I had Lots of questions for him about this pudding, but I will say, in the end, we as a family genuinely enjoyed the results. I will also say that this is a delightful interview, and I'm so excited for you that you get to listen in over the next hour. Welcome, Paul, and of course, welcome to you, my dear listeners. Hello, Paul. Hello, hello. How are you? Very well. Well, good. Well, good. So um, I, you've had just such a friendly persona. You've been so easy to communicate with. And every time I get an email from you, you, you are very kind, but I always smile when I get to the end because you just signed oh, wonderful. Paul Kelly, turkey farmer. Yeah. That, that. I know I could use all sorts of fancy titles, but I don't because I hate that. And I, it's, it's very, it's very likable. It's very likable. You've, you've fed the Royal Farm family. You have turkeys, a business that spans two continents now, right? The UK and the US. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes, exactly. And um, yeah. you're just a humble turkey farmer in your <laughs> in your email that's signature. Very much the case. Very much the case. Yeah. Well, and I would love to start with that. So I actually live about a mile away from a turkey farm. In fact, my kids, where they go to middle school, it backs up to a turkey farm. And the joke is like how the smell is. <laughs> And yeah, when they go yeah, back to yeah. school in the dog days of summer and it's hot and it's humid and the smell is wafting over to the basketball courts from the turkey farm, they yeah. they complain. And honestly, and we <laughs> we watch the little turkeys, you know, sometime in the summer, they're like these tiny little specks running around the yard as we drive past and then they get bigger and bigger. And then like two days before, or I guess it's usually the Sunday before Thanksgiving, we drive by and the little kids are like, where did all the turkeys go, mom? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's no, that's right? So so what's going on on that turkey farm? Like, what does it mean to be a turkey farmer? What do they have to do day in and day out? Is it hard work? Well, so they're, if they're producing turkeys for Thanksgiving, the mm -hmm. chicks will probably hatch on that turkey farm. Uh, mm -hmm. They're going to be about fourteen weeks old. So what you're talking about, August time? That's when mm -hmm. the turkeys will hatch, and they'll come in and stay old, and then they'll just rear them up. It's not on those bigger farms now. There's not if it is an automated standard turkey unit. There's not too much hard work now because mm -hmm. all the feed is automated um all the drinkers are automated it's just going around and checking the stockmanship making sure that there is they've got fresh food fresh water and nice clean litter and plenty of fresh air mm. that's um it's not rocket science it's just good husbandry mm. Mm. and now that's for like you said kind of a mass production how about on a turkey farm like the one you were raised on yeah, well, that's that's very different because we use mm -hmm. a very slow, the old traditional breeds. If you mm -hmm. go back, uh, when I say the old traditional breeds, it's, it's the breeds as they were after the war and in the 50s, you know, with mm -hmm. no genetic development. So our, our turkeys hatch uh, late spring, as is nature. You know, all, mm -hmm. all poultry, all turkeys, all wild birds will hatch, hatch late spring. So the reason for that is because when they come into autumn and winter, they're fully mature. So they've got all their feathers laid down so they can handle mm. the inclement weather. So oh. our turkeys hatch in late spring. Then we put them into what we call a brood house. Mm -hmm. So that's where really we're replicating mother 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 hen's wing. Mm. So we put them under some gas lamps where the temperature's, I'm going to talk centigrade here, 37, mm -hmm. which is about 99 Fahrenheit. So that's mm. just the same temperature as mother hen's wing. Mm. Put them in under, under those gas lamps, and then they can wander away from the gas lamps into the cooler part of the building. And gradually, at about three, four, five weeks of age, depending on the outside weather, you can get them what we call off heat. Mm -hmm. And so then they're ready to go out into the pasture and wild into the woodland. And mm. uh, of course, we can do that because we've we're, they, so they go out into the free range when they're five or six weeks old, which is in the middle of summer. So mm. you know, if, if it rains, it's going to be warm rain. And if it's mm -hmm. going to be windy, it's going to be warm wind. Mm -hmm. So as youngsters going out into the wild, um, they're going to they're going to manage it all right. They're going to mm -hmm. cope with it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's still it's still cyclical, but the cycle is like determined by nature. That's just when they they're born in early spring so that they can be warm enough That's by right. the fall. They're, they're sort of born yeah. in North, so when they come into the winter and mm -hmm. the late autumn, the fall and the winter, they're, they're fully mature and they laid all their fat down and they've got fully feathered, which, of course, yeah. is Mother Nature's way of defending the weather. That does make me, it's a bit strange, really, because what we're doing over in the US and what we do here, no one else does, which is grow turkeys wild you know, without, yeah. without those buildings that you see yeah. because we use the slow-growing breeze, because mm. we hatch the natural season, 
So mm-hmm. they do not need a building. And we had all sorts of challenges here when I first started to do it. People saying, well, that's cruel. You know, you've got to give them a building. And we had the RSPCA over here and mm. said, you know, what the hell are you doing? Rearing turkeys outside. <laughs> Which mm. is kind of funny. because Ironic, well, right? <laughs> <laughs> when do you think they moved inside? <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. you know. <laughs> you go back thousands of years when turkeys originated in mexico they didn't all have a little building to go to right and, uh, when they came up i said you know we've just driven past a field of sheep there and you were quite happy to see them outside we've just driven past the field of cattle cows, yeah and, you know that's all right why the turkeys i said the reason they have feathers yeah, yeah is to protect them from the rain that, and of course when they yeah stood, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, and it's uh, and when they saw them wild in the woods and dust bathing and eating the nettles and there's blackberries and the cherries and it's um, it's heaven, you know, it is totally oh, paradise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so fascinating to me that you got pushback because, of course, that's now the ideal. Yeah. But when you started, you got pushback. I know. That, and you know, you look at the that's amazing, and, mm. and that. It is amazing. It is. It is. It's staggering. And over in the continent, in Holland, for example, mm-hmm. you actually need a license to keep animals outside. <laughs> really? Well, because the whole of animal, the whole of agriculture has gone down that, I say, intensive route. You know, that's they're producing food very cheaply, great food very cheaply, yeah. and you you have you have to do those things to get the so they eat less food to keep them warm. But it's kind of you know that's the way now the industry's just... gone and the way government regulation's gone. Yeah, Weird. yeah. Now we've just normalized that. I am absolutely dumbfounded. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I really, that's... truly am dumbfounded. That's amazing. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, you know, where we live, if you have three acres or more, you are allowed to raise chickens. I don't know about turkeys. Turkeys are different than chickens. Yeah, in terms of their uh-huh. size, their cleanliness, right? Yeah, they're very similar. I mean, actually, if you know, if you okay. can grow chickens, you grow turkeys, and it's a. Uh, so huh. you don't want to mix them really because they have different disease challenges. But oh, the principles okay. are the same. Interesting, interesting. Wow, that's amazing. So most of the work of rearing them is done. I mean, it's most intense in spring, and then you have very, very little work. It sounds like, and then so you can give me a yes or no on that, and then also, yeah. do you butcher on a schedule, yeah. and what is that like? Oh yeah, yeah. We're very seasonal. We're growing mm. here in the UK. We're growing for the Christmas market. And in America, we're growing for oh, the Thanksgiving market. Okay. So the, work, the work, really, the first six weeks, that's where, on the, that's where all the tender loving care goes on. And yeah. <laughs> sure the temperatures are right and, you know, everything's absolutely, they're pampered. You know, they, yeah. they've got all the water they want, all the feed they want. We're just pampering them, pampering them. And then when they get released out into the woodlands, then it is a matter of just making sure the electric fence is on. You know, that ah. was a, a big a big a big step change for me over here in the uk i mean basically we've got we've got the badger and the fox they're the predators uh, well <laughs> well you know out in virginia at the bottom of the blue ridge mountains yeah it was very different <laughs> yeah Mountain no lion, y- y- i was gonna say bobcats <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly exactly wow and, uh, yeah no that's uh we had put some judd the guy you know, our partner out there, he said he was sent me some night shots, night vision shots, and says, See, this is why I've got such a big electric fence around. <laughs> I thought, wow. yeah, I fully understand now. I yeah. Fully understand. Yeah, that's wild. Even yeah. here, I'm in Maryland, which is just a state over from Virginia. We have coyotes yeah. here. Even yeah. in like yeah. really populated yeah. areas, we have coyotes. Yeah. Yeah. No, they were on the pictures as well. There's a lot. The, the challenges are very different. 
Yeah. But it's still, you know, it's still making sure, just waking up, you know, checking around, making sure that the fence lines are right, that the electric fence is on. Um, predators haven't got in, making sure they've all got feed and mm-hmm. that they do have the water lines running nicely and that they're all fit and healthy. So, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so the work isn't as intense during the rearing period. Um, mm-hmm. It obviously starts to to ramp up when we start plucking them at Christmas. And that's mm-hmm. what we do. That's mm-hmm. another big difference to what we're doing. It's the breed. It's that slow-growing breed. And then it's how we process them. An analogy I put to people over here when there's, people say, you know, what's the difference between your turkey and another turkey? Well, very, very quickly, just to have a kind of, it's a mini biology lesson, really. There's, there's five stages of change in any species of animal you get those five biological changes and that first of all you get a nervous system and blood supply then you get mm-hmm. vital organs then skeletal development then muscle is laid down and then fat is laid down mm-hmm. and the slow growing breeds that i'm talking about they've gone through all of those mm-hmm. they've gone through all those physiological changes so they've of course they've got blood supply and nervous system of course they've got vital organs all their skeleton has been laid down all their muscle and then, of course, we all know as you finally get to maturation, we lay down fat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with the younger turkeys now, the modern breeds, are, uh, they grow so fast now mm-hmm. that they, they process and pluck them at 12 or 14 weeks of age. Well, mm. they're in stage three of development. You know, they're only mm. in that skeletal development. They mm. haven't got the only muscle they've got is enough muscle to move around and, you know, just check. They haven't laid all their muscle down. Hmm. And they haven't laid all that fat down. And it's that fat that carries the flavor. Mm. And, and oh, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Massively. So I often say now the problem with today's turkey industry, Turkey has a bad reputation over here of being dry and flaky mm-hmm. and not very mm-hmm. good to eat. If you're processing it, plucking it, when it hasn't laid any of its fat down, natural fat, of course, you know, you do need to give it some help, which is why all the brining came about. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you brine it to put the moisture back into the meat. Mm-hmm. You baste it to put the moisture back into the meat. Well, if you get one of these slow-growing breeds like we do, and then we dry pluck it by hand, no water is ever, and then we hang it, as you would mm. a pheasant. Turkey is a game bird. It should be hung. Mm. Then you're getting turkey as it was 40 or 50 years ago and cooked to perfection, as we say. I, you know, Turkey is sublime, and, mm-hmm. which is why we won, won, we won all the awards we have. But mm-hmm. I can go on forever about Turkey. Are you guessing that? I can rest. No, well, and I, well, I do, I do have another question. And actually, it's really, this, this is fascinating to me. I do have a question. First of all, you mentioned a second ago that turkeys originated in Mexico, which is really interesting to me. So tell me about that. Yeah. And also tell me about specifically bronze turkeys. This is a, like your Kelly's bronze turkeys, right? That's the name of your business? Yeah. Right. And yeah, but right. bronze exactly. is not like a metal. <laughs> bronze is an actual breed of turkey. It's the color of the feather. That's it's right. So originally, okay. if, yeah. So the history of the turkey that every turkey in the world originated from Mexico. And of course, mm. it migrated from there up into the North America, into the Americas. And it's they were all bronze. And bronze is that it's a black, it looks like a black feather, but it's not. If you look at the feather bar at the end, it's got a lovely mm-hmm. bronze sheen on it. Why it's called mm. the bronze turkey. Mm-hmm. Well, it came over to Europe actually with the Spanish, the conquistadors huh. in the. 1500s mm-hmm. and it was henry the eighth put turkey on the map in the uk he mm-hmm. cooked them at hampton court mm-hmm. the, the bird of choice for the royal courts back then was actually the peacock but the turkey oh. was a yeah the turkey was a more rare exotic bird and it became the feast for the rich and for the royal courts huh. and it's amazing over here actually the history of it the turkey became more and more popular for christmas if you could afford a turkey Mm-hmm. And actually, in the in the 1700s, there are records of quarter of a million turkeys being walked to the London market wow. from the grain fields of 
Norfolk and Suffolk and Essex. I actually live in Essex. Wow. And they would walk those turkeys just a few miles a day. So the, the journey started just after harvest, mm-hmm. and they walked the turkeys a few miles a day feeding on the stubble fields. Wow. And um, there were actually turkey feeding stations along the way to the London wow. market. Wow. And, of course, if they walked them too fast too quickly, they'd lose weight, and they, yeah. got, paid, they got paid at Christmas. The amazing thing about all this is that if they didn't sell the turkeys when they got there in December, uh, they walked them home again. <laughs> <laughs> Try <laughs> to get an Easter. <laughs> I know. And bought them back the following year. Oh, but that a became, whole year later. Wow. Yeah, a whole year later. And I'll tell you, that's a, there's a big reason. There's a lot of myth about the cooking, but we'll get onto that later. Yeah. But the bronze turkey. So that's the bronze turkey, and it became more and more popular. Then in the 1950s, what happened in Europe and in the US, all turkeys were bronze up until the 1950s. Huh. The modern white turkey came along. And that basically is it's a kind of it's a mutation of the bronze gene. It was a it's basically an albino. Oh. So that white turkey was bred. And uh-huh. when you pluck a white turkey, you don't get the black feather stumps in the skin. Right. So it was oh, it was more yeah. aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a so, seedless watermelon. Uh, that's just about it. That's yeah. just about it. So in the 1950s, this modern white trendy turkey came along mm. and because it was more aesthetically pleasing in the plastic bag, mm-hmm. the bronze turkey literally in the space of seven or eight years disappeared. Wow. You know, it just w- went out of fashion because the, the, the supermarkets were coming along and the industry was growing and it was all yeah. about mass production. And so all the genetic development has been done on the white turkey and it's got to the stage now where the standard white turkey grows at 10 times quicker than, than a slow-growing breed. You know, you'll get... It doubles its weight every 10 years with the genetic selection that's oh, going on. Okay. Wow. Because, of course, the big world turkey breeders are breeding for better food conversion, mm-hmm. more meat, mm-hmm. younger processing ages. They're mm-hmm. just after economies, economies, economies. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. And that's why chicken and turkey today for the consumers out there is cheaper than it has ever been. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like 79 cents a pound or something at Christmas time if you get a generic brand name. Yeah, that's right. And of course, the retailers, the supermarket are losing a lot of money on that. They're paying Mm -hmm. that, they're lost leaders. But Mm. it's been produced down to a price. Mm -hmm. Now, what we did as a company, so the bronze turkey disappeared. And back in the 70s, actually, we had our breed of turkey, but it was a white turkey. And Hmm. we didn't really have any point of difference mm. so after coming back from college um, in the early 80s the we'd had you know we were there's only four of us on the farm it was the worst year we'd ever had because we were producing these wonderful white turkeys but the supermarkets were selling turkeys mm-hmm. so much cheaper than ours mm-hmm. we didn't have any real point of difference mm-hmm. so we thought we have to do something very different and so do our butcher customers Mm. You know, to compete with the supermarkets because they can't compete on price. Mm-hmm. So we, we went around the UK and we bought up the last remaining flocks of pure bronze turkeys. There's about 230 of them. Bought them back to the farm. Wow. Put them all together to get a really good broad genetic base. And in 1984, the Kelly bronze was born. That's our own breed. Um, wow. But it's not. Yes, it was. And it was um, it was a nightmare. <laughs> It, well, it, it was, it was like, I, I read the way you lay out the history of your family and your family yeah. business is yeah. so well done. And can we back up for a second and get to that point? So tell me about your grandfather starting the farm and yeah, then well, my, turning my, it over to your parents. And then, yeah, let's, let's, so give us the backstory a little bit. Like we've got the turkey's backstory yeah. to this when you bought them up and then now give me your family's backstory to that point. 
Okay, so my mother's father, mm-hmm. my grandfather. Your mother's a, father. Ah, I had yeah, that. My, okay, I made an assumption. Well, okay. Got, no, we've got two sides. So obviously we've got my mother. My mother's father was actually a farmer and butcher up in Yorkshire. Uh-huh. Oh. Um, in and my, my father's parents were actually school teachers. They were headmistress and head. They oh. were both head teacher and headmistress. Yeah. But... On their retirement, uh-huh. up and my father's a Geordie. He's from Newcastle, Newcastle. Uh-huh. Mum's from, she's from Yorkshire. They met at college. Uh-huh. And so then they got married. Dad kind of got, he worked on the farm with mum's dad. Mm. And he really, my father did a degree in poultry genetics. Oh, wow. And, wow. Yeah, he, so really he really knew what he was that. doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. So then his parents retired from school teaching mm. and they bought this little farm down, the home farm now down in Essex. Mm. As a retirement home, but also for kind of dad to mm-hmm. um, get his feet under the table and yeah, start yeah. producing poultry mm-hmm. in the farming country. So, yeah, so it all started then. And actually dad worked for other poultry companies before starting on his own in 1971. He worked for a big guy over here, Bernard Matthews and some of the very big companies. But he um, he got disillusioned with it. Whilst it was the poultry industry then was really growing and growing fast, he could see it was a, a race to the bottom mm-hmm. rather than... No attention was paid to what it tastes like or, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the welfare aspects of it and mm-hmm. way before his time, really. But the problem is we had, and he had, you know, had a really nice white turkey. Mm-hmm. And it was how do you really compete with the industry producing really cheap white turkeys? Yeah, in yeah. I mean, so you, yeah, yeah. You just told me something I never knew before, which is, again, you put all the, like those freezers full of turkeys in a big supermarket chain, and that's a loss leader for them. So if people are using this as a loss leader, how can you possibly, you know, charge for the same product so much more? Now people can do it because free range has kind of become a thing. But yeah. um, you guys were kind of part of what made it a thing, really. Oh, that we we bought the bronze turkey back onto the market, but yeah. you know, I my I came back into the business in eighty three, eighty four, uh-huh. and it was so obvious we will never be able to compete on price mm-hmm. because you can't compete when they're not leading. Mm-hmm. But what we can compete on and what we can do better is just make a turkey that tastes better yeah. and is genuinely better. Yeah. And Thanksgiving and Christmas Day are one of those. They're the days that people will pay a premium. Mm-hmm. for something that is genuinely better. And that's mm-hmm. the key word, genuinely. And unfortunately, I think a lot of consumers over the years have mm-hmm. been kind of misled or misinformed with food. You know, mm. it's got all these lovely words attached to it, and it's mm. like the free range and the organic and the mm. bronze and the, you know, pasture raised. And, mm. you know, you can use all those fancy words, but mm-hmm. really it's about the breed, how mm. long you grow it for, what you feed it in between, mm. and then that processing at the end, and mm. and, uh, and the dry plucking, and the hanging, and in Virginia there with the it, it's the only USDA licensed plant. It's the only one doing that in the whole of the mm. USA at the moment. That, mm. that mm. dry plucking and hanging is the final twenty percent. So mm. it's a quality change. Wow! So people say to me, "What? What's the perfect? It's not free range on its own means nothing. Yeah. Range on its own means nothing." Mm. organic Uh, unless 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 you care about the ethics of it that's right i'm talking yes you're absolutely right free range when it comes but when it comes to the eating quality and what it's going to taste like yeah you see you can take a very fast growing white breed and you can free range it and then that it's free range to the welfare is fine and then that same turkey then goes through 
a wet process normal plant mm. right so you've you've ticked the welfare box mm. with the free range but you certainly haven't addressed the eating quality issue with mm. the fact that it's fast grown it's killed so and it's processed so young mm-hmm. and of course it's not dry plucked and hung so mm. you know you you tick yeah. one box but i mean yeah the yeah, that's, is about ticking all the boxes, really. yeah, 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 yeah. That's so interesting. And you've explained why it's important to let it grow through its whole process, not just to 14 weeks, because it lays the fat down. That obviously has a yeah. difference on the taste. Tell me more about the difference between wet and dry plucking. What's the yeah, difference okay, there? So, well, why does that affect the flavor? It's it's because you can hang. Basically, if you mm. if you add water to anything, if you process any meat or anything and you put water onto it, bugs can grow. Bugs love water and they Mm. need water to grow. Mm. So if you remove that water from the process, the bacteria Mm -hmm. and bugs can't grow. So Mm. the way we pluck our turkeys is we we defeather the bird by hand so we haven't damaged the skin, Mm -hmm. we haven't added water. And so because we haven't damaged the skin, the bugs can't set in, right? And we haven't added water so the bugs can't grow. So you can hang the bird and we can hang our turkey for up to five weeks in the fridge. Mm. Yeah. All we've done is deep feather it. We have, mm. We've left the head on. We've left the feet on. We've left all the intestines in. You know, it's a bizarre concept, but it's it's, uh, it's the traditional way of doing poultry because before modern factories and water processes came along, everything was dry plucked. You know? mm. Everyone would just, you know, you'd kill a pheasant and you'd pluck it and you'd hang it in the larder. Mm. And then what happens is during that hanging process, people mm-hmm. think it's a bacterial change, that it's mm-hmm. going off. It's not that at all. What's happening is, like with beef, the collagen, the connective tissue in the muscle, mm-hmm. is breaking down. It's an oh. enzyme reaction. Hmm. See? Now, the other thing is because when we pluck the bird, we haven't put a knife into it to prepare it for the oven immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we haven't, none of the muscles have contracted. Mm. They, they mm-hmm. stay in their natural elongated state. Mm. And when rigor mortis comes out of the muscle after 36, after three days, mm-hmm. Rigor mortis comes out of the muscle, the bird, with the muscles that elongated. Yeah? Hmm. So it's a much tender, better eating experience as well. So it's those nuances that make the difference. And with the wet process, bird, you see, and let, please let me, there's nothing wrong with mm-hmm, that wet mm-hmm, processing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. what happens rather than us, we've got a shed full of people plucking the turkeys and taking the feathers out, <laughs> water never touching it. <laughs> there, it goes into, the bird's killed, of course, processed, and then it goes into a water bath. A hottish water bath. Mm. What that does is open the feather follicles up, mm-hmm. so it comes out of the water bath, and then it goes into these automatic pluckers, and they're just big rubber fingers that are spinning around, mm. and they take all the all the feathers off. Now, going mm. through that water bath to heat the skin up, you've mm-hmm. added a lot of cross contamination. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I feel a little nauseous. <laughs> There's <laughs> nothing wrong about with it. it. Please <laughs> let me confirm because we're going to cook it afterwards. But... <laughs> And then those rubber fingers whizzing around, they damage the epithelium. They take the Mother Nature's barrier off the skin, mm. the top of the skin. So lots of bugs, remove Mother Nature's barrier, spoilage for bacteria can set in quickly. So what you do then is you immediately take all the head off the bed, get, take the, mm. the eviscera out, and you pack it, and you and either freeze it or you mm-hmm. get it into distribution quick, fresh, mm-hmm. so it can be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With our birds, you know, I, mm. I eat turkey tartare. You know, I have my turkey tartare. Do so for people, if they don't exactly know, that means you eat it, you eat it without cooking it. Yes, I put it yeah, raw, you, yeah, with egg, raw egg, and some just a, a classic tartar recipe for me. And of course, people 
go. I've had some Michelin star restaurants actually in London that they'll they'll put Kelly Bronze on the menu as turkey tartare. No one buys it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a great thing to have because if you eat rare turkey or chicken, you will die, right? I mean, that's what everyone thinks. But no, I mean, yeah, I'd quite happily eat our, our turkey raw. Wow. Well, I'm. <laughs> My family's already <laughs> hesitant enough about the kidney. Yeah, I know. If I... you gave me a turkey tartare recipe, <laughs> 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 I might have written back and said, Paul, yeah, <laughs> this is a bridge too far. So you you take, is it any particular part of the turkey that you use when you make your tartare? Yeah, yeah the thigh. The dark you meat. use One. the thigh. Yeah. And do you yeah, chop it? Meat. You chop it finely. Chop it finely. Just put it into a mince. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then just a classic. I just love onions, egg, capers. And, you know, plenty of salt and pepper. I love that. I'll yeah. tell you what. <laughs> I am... so you can't do it with a normal turkey. Please, everyone, listen. Yes. Please do not do that with a normal turkey, okay? Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's very, very right. different. And, right. you know, and that leads that leads you on. I don't know. The dark meat from our turkey is really, really dark. And it's oh. really, really rich. Now, huh. if you, the, the chicken you get nowadays, right? You'll go to the supermarket and get a standard chicken. The uh-huh. leg meat is very similar in color, is it not, to the breast meat nowadays? Mm-hmm. You know, it is, it is, it is. Sometimes you're not even quite sure. It's more like the um, texture that when you cook it that you can tell. That's exactly right. And now the reason for that is mm-hmm. because the chickens, just like they're killed, they're processed so young now mm-hmm. that, of course, those legs haven't had much exercise. Your average chicken will be 31 days, 35 mm. days when they're processed. Mm. Our turkeys, they're six months. They hatch mm-hmm. natural season. So that. Going out on the free range, all that exercise, it's the myoglobin and the exercise that gives that those leg muscles and the thigh muscles the dark color. Mm. Right? And that's what gives it all that flavor. Mm. So when you're looking at any poultry, actually, if you, if you look at the color of the leg meat, mm-hmm. um, and if it's really dark and rich in color, mm. that's mean it'll be fully mature. It'll be great quality. Hmm. But it's uh, an R. The dark meat from ours, turkey, oh, it's stunning. You know, we just, it's... Uh, Mm-hmm. It's and then it's uh, it's wonderful. You know, I prefer the dark meat to the breast meat all day long. Mm, yeah, that's we're about half and half in my family. That's definitely my husband. Yeah, yeah. that is yeah. this. Yeah. I, this is so fascinating, Paul. I am learning so much. I love it. This is fascinating. <laughs> this is great. This is great. Well, and <laughs> let me ask you about the process. I have this picture in my mind of you and your dad in the car, you know, driving around the English countryside, like just dashing out of your car into the forest, grabbing a bronze turkey and pulling it back, you know, throwing it in the truck. Like when you say you bought up every bronze turkey in the UK, how did you find them? Were they, were they just out and about? Did individual farmers have them? Like, how did you even, yeah, find them, was, buy them? Well, Obviously, we were in the turkey in industry, and we knew yeah, all the farmers. You had we, some people, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we we knew the contacts, and we and there were four small breeders of bronze turkey still, one in Bury in Scotland, the Sorry Brothers. Then mm. there were Webster's in Lancashire, and there's Mike Thorne over in Norfolk, and there was a small guy down in Cornwall, the south of England. So we went round, and they all had you know 50, 60 turkeys of mm-hmm. breeding stock, pure, pure lines, and they thought we were crazy. I was going to say, did they think you were crazy? Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. So did the industry. We were the laughing stock of the of the turkey world here back mm. in the eighties, doing this this crazy thing, buying these old bronze breeds and then free ranging them. Mm. Yeah, that was a. Even my father said, 
you know, I'm not sure about free ranging, Paul. I think see the bronze bit, but the free ranging, you know, your rear turkey is inside. And I said, well, you know, you don't, do you? It's just because the industry had gone, they didn't really understand the life cycle of parasites and the diseases mm. that affected turkeys. Mm. That's why they were bought inside. Well, if you, science has moved on, you know, pathology had moved on. We understood the life cycle of parasites. Mm. And if you understand that, you just break the cycle mm. and you don't stop the turkeys too high. You give them nice fresh pasture. So you can grow them if you want. So it's a, mm. uh, yeah, no, but it was some, some very challenging years in the early 80s. And I, I have yeah. to say, if, mm-hmm. I'd, um, if I'd known now, mm. if I'd known then, I should say, mm-hmm. that it would have been where we were now, it would have made those early years much easier. Oh, well, of course. It's it's not it's not a risk then, is it? No. <laughs> and that's no, the nature exactly. of a risk is you don't you don't yeah. know. Well, so let's let's talk about that. I want to know about that because I'm a little fuzzy on the years and where you personally fit in with this because it seems like you were kind of a child, like reared. Maybe I'm thinking you were like in your teenage years when it started to get really tough. Like when that, like as the ascension of the white Turkey, I'm thinking was like in your teen years, like at what point did you say, this is like the business that I'm committed to? Was that ever a struggle, especially if it was tough? Like, tell me a little bit about that, how you experienced that personally. So I was what, 63. I was eight when the business started in 1971, when dad actually finally went to the Okay. Yeah, I was eight when it started. So, and dad had been working in turkeys then. So my whole life, you know, I've been plucking turkeys since the age of eight. So I was very much in the business and I went to college, did my business studies. Then I went and did a poultry science degree. And then Mm -hmm. I came, I actually, that was, I came out of college when I was 21. And Mm -hmm. I actually wanted to, um, shouldn't say it really, but I wanted actually to have wine bars and nightclubs. That was my real, that was that's mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. That's you know, every, every extroverted guy's goal, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll settle for the next best thing, which is turkey bar, of course. But, <laughs> so, I, so I was in 1983, which, as I say, that was the worst, the worst um, of the worst. year in history. Worst of the worst on the London markets. Um, yeah. I'd and come this- back, finished college, and I was actually going to go traveling. But dad had to lay his two farm staff that we did have he had to lay them off fire them because the business was so bad wow Um, we had to start from scratch so I said I'll stay at home for a a year or so before I go traveling did you say it um, kind of grudgingly like well or or was it kind of like it was just like well this is what I gotta do did you you, I mean the family was in trouble you know we were in trouble so you know Mm -hmm. and that was me my sister as well you know Mm -hmm. my brother we all kind of got round it and had to have pull through it. And, it was uh, just simple. Then, it was not even a decision. Yeah, it was, this was just yeah. what, no, yeah. No decision at all. And I don't regret any bit of it mm. now, but then, you know, as things go, you don't just stay for a year because you can't, you can't resolve all those huge issues. Mm, sure. Yeah. You year, don't you? break into a new market in a year. <laughs> <laughs> so it was then after coming back in and we said, well, let's just go in a different direction and said to mm. dad, let's go and get all the bronze circuits, which we did. And of course then, it was fascinating and really interesting, incredibly tough mm. and traumatic. And, you know, it was some terrible times where you just can't pay the bills at the end of the month and things mm. like that. But, mm-hmm. of course, that is a great education in itself. I, mm. I don't regret one bit of it. But yeah. it was an, I've had an amazing journey, an amazing journey, and I love what I do. Well, you sh- yeah, <laughs> you, you sure have. You sure have. You sure have. When you say there's, that's an education in and of itself, what do you feel like, like you owe to those years? Yeah. I, you know, because I... I honestly wake up now, I wake mm. up every morning and think I must be the luckiest man alive. I've got a beautiful home, a beautiful family. I've got a great business that I love. 
but then I, because I think I'm so appreciative of everything that I've got, you know, mm-hmm. when you have had literally you can't pay the bills and it's been horrible, we all know that's not a good place to be, is it? And then mm-hmm. when you get the situation where I don't have to worry if I can go on holiday, I, you know, if we want to go on holiday, we go on holiday, you know, you mm-hmm. don't have to worry about any bills anymore. So I appreciate mm-hmm. everything that I've got. And, and mm-hmm. the business is going from strength to strength. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. people said, why did you go to America? I thought going to America 10 years ago to look at it, was a fantastic opportunity because I went it was I, I look at America and it's there's lots of good stuff going on yeah but it was still very much a race about producing it as cheaply as possible and selling it as cheaply as possible mm. rather than producing something that's so exquisite and just simply the best mm. especially in America when you know the sales of fine wines and mm-hmm. champagne at Thanksgiving go through the roof don't they but the turkey offer um is nothing wrong with it but it mm. is very much a standard turkey. There's nothing what I would say was, you know, really, really great about it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you think, and of course you've got a huge turkey market, so it was a challenge. Yeah. And you know what was great? What? It, what was really good was that I could go and start in America. Mm-hmm. I had a bit of money now mm-hmm. and I knew what to do. And that makes hell of a difference oh, to, to, yeah. enjoy, to enjoying it. Yeah. 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 uh, Well, yeah. Well, it does because it's exactly what you just said. Like, if I had known then what I knew now, I would have enjoyed those years. They would have been lean years, but I would have enjoyed them. So, moving into the market in America, like, you actually had that opportunity. You knew it was going to be a little tough. There were going to be roadblocks, but like, you know, this business model works. Yeah, it does. And that's right. You see, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, quality wins. It Mm. does. You know, and you see that in every single industry. You know, Mm -hmm. you see it in the car industry. The best of the best, you know, cream floats to the top. Mm. So, but the challenge is, of course, is getting people to know you're there, understand why it's so special. Okay. And then, of course, taking that huge step Mm. of spending a lot more money on the turkey to Mm -hmm. test it, to try it. Mm. And of course, there's, uh, and as we're still a small business, we don't, we know, we're not a Procter and Gamma or Unilever or anyone like that. We don't have huge (laughs) marketing budget. We do have to rely Purdue, on word of mouth. Yeah, no, exactly. We don't have that kind of a marketing budget. But what we do have, of course, is we have people out there. And I you know, I say to our guys out there that every customer we supply out there is, is one of our ambassadors. And we have to provide mm. them with the most exquisite Thanksgiving meal, turkey, that they've had. Mm-hmm. You know, And it's a challenge because you know, the other massive difference that we have is our cooking times that you know, mm. we're – our turkey cooks in two hours because of all that fat marbling and mm-hmm. all the intramuscular fat. Mm-hmm. It heats up twice as quick as a normal turkey that's very lean, mm-hmm. so it cooks twice as quick. Mm-hmm. Now, Thanksgiving, say with Christmas here, that's not the day you experiment, is it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, there's me saying cook your turkey in one and three quarter hours or two yeah, hours. Yeah, right. And are you mad? And then there's Are Alton Brown mad? saying, yeah, start the two days in advance, put your turkey in a tub, brine it, That's right. put it in at That's 500, right. then turn it down, then cook for four more hours, then let it rest. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly right. The, the so, turkey's yeah. cremated. It's not cooked. It's cremated. You know. And there's, you know, and people, which is why all of our turkeys, there's a meat thermometer that comes in with it. You know, every turkey oh, has a meat okay. thermometer that, that doesn't lie. That tells you the temperature. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. But you know what, what's, That's what's really fascinating? What's really fascinating about that, the cooking times from turkeys, you know, people getting up in the middle of the night to cook the turkey for 12 hours, that all stems back 
350 years ago to that time I told you, you know, when they're walking the turkeys to London? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Once they walk them back again, that turkey becomes a yearling. Right mm -hmm. now, if you take a turkey over 29 weeks of age, mm -hmm. it starts to get tough. Yeah. You know, and it would. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, mm -hmm. as the bird is no longer a youngster, it's getting the meat gets tougher. Mm -hmm. Well, just in case you got one of those turkeys that walked back to market 350 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. That was a yearling. So you did need to braise it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So sure. Mm -hmm. The old cooking books here, Mother Beans, if you go back, it's about just in case you get the yearling. Braise the turkey and let's be safe. So braise it. So cook it long and slow. Right, right, right. And that yeah, tradition, break down all that muscle. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That tradition has been about and everyone's followed it. But I can assure you, no turkeys walk to market and back again nowadays, right? Yeah. Every turkey <laughs> is, every turkey anyone will eat in any supermarket will be a young turkey. Yeah? Some a lot younger than they should be. Yeah, right. our one's a young one. It's hatched late May. So those low, slow, long cooking times—it's just you know—if you look at the history behind it, where they came from, you wouldn't do it now. That's really so interesting. That is so interesting. Hmm. Well, and I'm I'm thinking also about like you said, the trick is to convince people, you know. And I'm wondering where you developed. I mean, again, I'm going back to Paul Kelly, turkey farmer, but. You've got to be a master marketer in some way as well, because and and I'd like to talk about your parents also and their marketing savvy, because that's an understatement. The trick is to convince people that you've got the quality. Like, how do you convince somebody to try this when no one is trying it? Tell me about your parents' marketing skills and yours. How did you guys learn that? Did they come naturally. Tell me about that. I think a lot of it. For, for us, and I, I, you know, looking back to the 80s when we were really, because we didn't have a budget, you know, and we were just mm -hmm. telling people. And, of course, I was going out to butchers who said, Paul, you idiot. You know, people don't mm -hmm. like bronze turkeys because of the black feather stubs. And I'm saying, but it's not. It's a bronze turkey. And then we're growing it free range. And then it's got this wonderful dark meat. Mm -hmm. And we, we pull all the sinews out of the legs. And we're doing all these wonderful things. Mm -hmm. And I think back then I actually got, a, I got quite a lot of, because I was so passionate about it. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're passionate about, and that comes across with anything, doesn't it? If anyone's passionate about something, people listen. And we mm. were, and because we were going in those eighties, because journalists would phone up and say, "Can I come and see your farm and see what you're doing?" I would say, "Of course you can. When do you want me to pick you up? In an hour? You know, please come wow. and see what we're doing." That same journalist would phone one of the bigger companies and say, "Can I come and have a look at what you're doing?" And there would be panic in the boardroom. You know, they get some PR agency out of London to come and say, you know, someone wants to come and see what we're doing. Because, of course, they're producing these very fast-growing turkeys in big sheds and mm. too tightly packed maybe and the processing plant and the wet processing. There was nothing really there nice to show anyone, mm. nothing good to show. And what we were doing was so radically different that we were really, really proud of what we do. And yeah passionate about what we do and a new food food journalist everyone's looking for us something that's different and great and yeah. we were there at the right time yeah and i knew as i say now if and i've said to the industry at open forums that if you're in a business and if you're not willing to show your customers what you do and every aspect of what you do then you have to ask yourself a question hmm. and a lot of agriculture has gone down that route and not because they've wanted to do not because farmers have wanted to go that route, but because they've been forced to. The market the supermarket buyer. Exactly. You've got the supermarket buyer beating the farmer over the big stick saying we want it cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. 
the consumer never gets really involved in this conversation mm-hmm. right? at all. So, okay, fine. Yeah, I'll do. It. I'll have to. I'll have to grow them faster. I'll have to kill them quicker. We've got to speed the factory lines up. We've got to put more in the shed. We've got to produce it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Consumer never gets to know all about that. And of course, what's happened over the past years, people have been quite shocked, haven't they? About oh my god, yeah. I didn't realise that, happened, or I didn't realise that was going on. Yeah. Because they've never had dialogue. They've never been involved in mm. the process of what's going on. Now, what we're doing and what we do is we just go back to just good, honest turkey farming. And, yeah. you know, I do want people to walk into our farms and go, you know what? That's exactly what I expected. And yeah. Isn't that wow. great? Mm. You know? Yeah. And so when it comes to the marketing, if you have a great product and you're passionate about what you do, it kind of looks after itself. That's, you know, I mean, that's a good thing. It doesn't, of course. You you know, I just go to all the food shows and in the early years, you know, you'd be, I'd be sleeping in, a, sleeping in the car and then going to this little stand in the food show just to rub shoulders with the movers and shakers mm. just so they get to hear about what we're doing because mm. we couldn't, we didn't have any money to tell everyone. So, you know, we, we and this, and, and we're starting to spread. And mm-hmm. it was, I remember in 19, 19- 89 it was I'd mm. been going around London to all the butchers selling my Kelly bronze turkeys and a lot of them were kind of getting into it and they understood that that's what they had to do something better mm-hmm. to compete with the supermarkets but they were reluctant to but then mm. suddenly when so when we started to create demand through getting press getting consumer mm. press getting the glossy magazines mm. suddenly those people were going into their local butcher mm. and saying can you get me one of these Kelly Bronze, please? I've read about mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, then that's different. Then the butcher picks up the phone to me sure. and says, can you supply us a few mm. couple of cases of Kelly Bronze? You know, then, I bet that the, was in 89. I was going to say the first thought, time you, know you got that phone call, that yeah, felt so good, I didn't thought, it? <laughs> I bet that's a moment you still remember. Mm. Yeah. No, very mm. much so. Mm. And then we got a lot of, there's a lady, Delia Smith over here. She's a very famous chef. She put us in a Christmas book and no, it all started to snowball really. Mm. Did you ever, great. did you and your family ever doubt yourselves? Um, I mean, you had other options. No. We had, you know, we did have the other option of maybe just going down that route and chasing, I, you know, at the time, honestly, honestly, we didn't really have any other options because we were mm. in such, you know, we were basically bankrupt. You know, mm. we were we were bankrupt, insolvent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. we either had to do something radically different mm-hmm. or accept the fact that um, we'll just have to go out of business and, you know, go and get a job somewhere. So and that's 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 interesting because to you that that's what I that's what I meant when I said you had other options. Right. But to you, that was not an option. Like you just again, no, it was the passion. Yep. Yeah. And in my heart of heart, I knew that was the right thing for the butchers and mm. for all those independent traders to compete mm. with the onslaught of the supermarkets. Mm. And if for them, and we had a guy, David Lidgate in Holland Park in London. He, he, you know, he's a visionary and he's, he knew what we were doing was right. And of course, if someone like David Lidgate, who was a real top butcher, if he said something, then all the other butchers would listen. Mm. And we started to buy in what we were doing. Because it was so, so radically different, and it is, and it yeah. and it still is, and it's. But you know what's great is there's still lots to do. There's still lots to do. Mm. Mm. Tell me a little bit about your mom in this process. How involved was she? And well, first tell me a little bit about her, like as a mother, you know, not as a turkey yeah. farmer. And then yeah, tell me a little bit about her as a turkey farmer. And she seems critical because she kind of brought these new ways of cooking to be. 
yeah, that's that's right. When we started with doing the, um, you know, mum was the, the queen of Turkey now, mm. you know, to, in the last years of the 80s and 90s, she became the queen of Turkey because this was nothing. You know, mum would always say, whatever you do, not you know, putting just parking Christmas turkey aside, looking at it all year round. So whatever you can do with lamb, pork or beef, you can do with turkey. It's got the white meat, it's got the dark meat, you know, and it's very, very versatile. Mm. So there wasn't, there wasn't a, a week would go by when we wouldn't have a different turkey recipe, you know, mm. two or three times a week. And remarkably, I still love turkey. Yeah. <laughs> like amazing. <laughs> but yeah, mum was very, I mean, we, we were, there's me, dad, my sister Lynn, mm. and two others in mm. the late 80s. And mum, we were breeding turkeys, hatching turkeys. So she was very much involved with everything. You know, we've got, mm-hmm. they've got the breeders collecting the eggs, putting the hatchery, delivering the poults to the customers growing the turkeys actually when we when we launched the bronze turkey we just went out and plucked a few and that mm-hmm. was over with this one of these breeders my mother and i went over and we plucked the first 20 turkeys i remember wow. over in cheshire actually and we delivered them to that very butcher that i've just talked about david lidgate that wow. was in christmas 93 we plucked these 20 turkeys to take them to him say what do you think david and uh, mum always said we had a collection of rare breeds on the farm mm-hmm. and we grown they've just been pens you know and she would say that the eggs from them and the meat was just so different and they were because turkeys mm. love nettles you know and huh. uh, that's another thing she was the one that really came up she was a believer that if if an animal loves to eat something there's a good reason for that yeah. mm. and my mum just loved food she, she would say that but there was genuinely mm. You know, there's a correlation between animals eating what they really love and what they would naturally want to eat, mm-hmm. yeah, and the meat being fine in texture and fine mm-hmm. to eat. Um, mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. certainly found that. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's interesting. I remember we were listening to this audio book together as a family. That this it's about a person, but there was this boy. He was like living on a mountain, and he found himself desperately wishing to eat. This is the most bizarre thing, but the liver of like a bird that he had caught and he you yeah. know, ended up killing the bird, eating the liver. And then it turns out there's a particular vitamin deficiency that, you know, can be cured by eating the liver. And it was just this idea of like, whatever we as biological beings are craving, there is a reason for it. It's because our body yeah. knows it needs that. And so the That's turkey, right. there's something about the nettle that nourishes the turkey and just the way that makes it grow, grow properly. Yeah. And that's absolutely right. You know, those turkeys, once they get out and work, and farmers, again, farmers think we're mad. I mean, the nettles are the kind of the antichrist to a lot of farmers. They don't want nettles <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we're, we're turkey farm. We want all of our pastures and all our woodland full of nettles. You know, oh, think we're mad. That's so funny. Yeah. Did your mom learn her cooking skills? Was she trained formally or was she just good at experimenting? Tell me about that. Not at all. I mean, she was just, a, you know, a butcher's daughter. And my mm. grandmother loved making just classic, classic food. And she, just, she, as I say, she genuinely loved food. And so she wasn't a formally trained chef, no, but she just loved to cook. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as a butcher's daughter, she really did understand the products she was working yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, that very much so, very much yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. She was about, a wonderful lady. She was a wonderful lady. Tell me more about that. <laughs> she just was. She was a... Uh, there's nothing would phase mum. And she was just, she taught us a lot about just those just very simple, you know, your word is your bond. You know, mm-hmm. if you shake hands with someone, you would never let anyone down. And if you said something, mm-hmm. you had to follow through on it. And uh, it was just, you know, simple mm-hmm. as that. 
Mm-hmm. You, know, you get emotional just thinking about it. She left. Uh, we lost mum, what, 10 years ago now, 2010. Mm-hmm. She was 81. Mm-hmm. She was the only person I know. She had a stroke. Mm-hmm. She was so laid back. She had a stroke. And so she had to, she was in a wheelchair and she said, oh, isn't this lovely? You know, and I'm thinking <laughs> she just loved being pushed around. <laughs> <laughs> what other person would think, how lovely is this? Now I'm just in a wheelchair. Everyone's pushing me around. <laughs> oh, that's a woman yeah. who's worked hard. Yeah, exactly. 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 She's yeah. earned, she's earned it. Yeah. I remember asking my grandmother once, don't you ever get lonely? And she said, Rebecca. Once you've had six loud children at home, you will never regret a moment of sitting in a chair with a book. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. That's wonderful. It was her father, my grandfather, actually. He, he I must have yeah. been nine or seven years old. And I remember it very well, actually. He sat me, I was with him. He used to play the piano. And mm-hmm. um, we were just having a chat. And he said, Paul, I just want you to remember one thing. He said, a man's wealth is always judged by the feuders of his wants. And uh, that really stuck with me, actually. Wow. You know, all these all these materialistic things that we're all chasing and wanting, you know, it's um not really that important, is it? You just gotta want for less and appreciate everything that you've got. Ooh, so, that is profound. We're getting very, very we're getting deep now. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love knowing a little bit about your mom. Can we talk about her steak and kidney pudding? Oh yes, her soup yes. pudding. Okay. Yes. Suet pudding. Yes. Okay. So several questions. So I I do have listeners like all over the globe, you know, but even for Americans, this whole idea of pudding is like a completely cross-cultural experience. (laughs) (laughs) So so we need to explain some basic terms here. First of all, what is a pudding, Paul? Well, well, a pudding, a classic pudding actually is a dessert. You know, Mm -hmm. it's um, what you would have after your main course. Yes. Um, but the reason this is a steak and kidney pudding is because basically it looks like a pudding. It looks mm-hmm. like a, a sticky toffee sponge pudding. It's got that suet case around it. Mm-hmm. It's a very soft suet case that you cut into. It really isn't a pudding at all in that respect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not sweet. It's very savory. Yeah. But a, a classic pudding is a dessert. And it's as simple as that. Yeah. Okay. But, now, uh, this is definitely the article made a distinction and it's true. There's a distinction between a steak and kidney pudding and a steak and kidney pie yeah yeah so tell yeah, me the difference that's right. well a, a pie you know uh-huh. it's got a crust on it yes that's just like a pastry it's got a pastry crust on it uh-huh. um, a suet pudding is you get the beef suet you know the fat uh-huh. and actually you put that and you mold that so it's not a pastry at all it's beef suet beef fat pastry uh-huh. with all the steak and kidney in the middle of it yeah and cooked with the topping we boil it you yes. um, steam it. Yes. Steam I, it like a I think that was news to me. I thought yeah. steak and kitty pudding, steak and kitty pie, same thing. But a pudding is steamed. That's right. It's yeah. steamed. And it's suet and everything. Yeah. All the, the, you know, there's lots of recipes online. It's, yes. Uh, it's not as popular here in the south of England as it is in the north of England. It's very much a northern England dish. Um, yeah. And it is incredibly unhealthy. It yeah. is. <laughs> A heart attack. It's a heart attack all wrapped up in about half a pound. <laughs> well, and that is the last thing that people listening, I think, need to understand because I did not know what suet it was until someone gave me a, a pudding recipe. Um, yeah. Yes, for this podcast. So a lot of people listening won't know what suet is. That, And that's just so people know, that's the fat that you use to make the pastry with. But what is that fat? 
Well, it's taken off the intestine. It's taken off yeah. all peel off the intestine <laughs> of the cow. Yes. You know, it's pure, pure, unadulterated fat. <laughs> it's just the purest form of beef fat you'll ever get. And it is just delicious. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> have you tried some? Have you tried it? I have. I have had suet. Yeah, because I had it for that other pudding that I made. And yeah. I just, I I mean, this is going to gross people out who are listening. They're going to be shocked. And I even have a lot of vegan listeners. But I mean, I'm that person like, if there's somebody in my family, so there's six of us, my my husband and I have four sons. If there's someone in my family who won't eat the fat off the meat, like it's what you said earlier, that's where the flavor is. I'm like, go ahead, put it on my plate. I'll eat your fat. I I, yeah, I yeah, just yeah, yeah. love animal fat. Yeah. I know. And, <laughs> and the, you know, know, I mean, and the, and the brain is all fat. Our brain needs fat. You know, mm-hmm. you need fat to feed the brain. It's... um. That's that's my excuse anyway. <laughs> well, well, it is it is true. I do I do think that just like animals, I think certain people, you know, there was that whole low carb diet that came out a little while ago. It was like all the thing, and some yeah. people did fine on it. Women tended not to because we don't have as many reserves, generally speaking. And I think certain people and certain bodies, and my body does crave fat. I'm not I'm not much of a sweet person. Like I don't crave that the way some people crave sugar. But my I do love fattening things, fat, like whole milk and things like that. Like my body just craves that. I don't know why exactly. I'm, I'm very much the same. Very yeah. much the same. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. And, fat, it's, you know. and and it doesn't actually necessarily have to do with like your, your physical shape or, you know, your leanness or whatever your different bodies just crave, I think different things. So anyhow, no, absolutely. Yeah. So the one, the one other thing I want to ask you about, so I haven't made this yet because I'm going to just say bluntly, my family is very nervous to try it. And I, I want to make it one time to photograph it. I was like, I'm not going to waste kidney twice. So I'm going to make this one time. <laughs> um, um, so tell me what it is that, that this whole idea of kidney, obviously, so we don't eat kidney in America. And that actually is problematic. I think just from an ethical standpoint, because if I, I mean, I, I think generally speaking, we should be using as many parts of an animal the as awesome. possible. Yeah. 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 I can yeah. say that theoretically, but I can also say I have very rarely eaten organ meat. So I'm, I'm a complete and total hypocrite. So my question is, do people, did this originate and now when people eat it, do they like it? Because it's just, it's not a wasteful thing. You got to put the kidney in somewhere. So let's cover it up with a bunch of fat and pastry and flour and gravy and other parts of beef. Or do people really generally like, how about you particularly, the taste of kidney? What does it bring to a dish? Um, I certainly prefer the steak element of the yeah. pie, of the pudding, <laughs> rather than the kidney. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say I don't. I don't particularly like the kidney in the mm-hmm. steak and kidney pudding, mm-hmm. right? but that's very true. But it is a northern dish, and you know mm-hmm. that's where tripe. You know, my mum used to make mm. tripe. Have you mm. tried tripe? You know that mm. just I can't mm-hmm. eat. Mum used to love it. Mm. You know, you get cow stomach with she cow stomach with salt and vinegar and um, boiled. Mm. <laughs> it's not for me. Mm. But uh, no, we should say when we actually to be up there when we made the steak and kidney pudding when mum made it. Um, she did. She was a bit light on the kidney because none mm-hmm. of the family really liked the kidney. It was all about the steak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love liver. You know, I do love other offal, but the kidney, not. It's a bit too strong for me. The it, flavor of it. Am I wrong? Because I feel like I've had it before. Doesn't it have like an almost metallic taste to it? Or am I wrong? Yeah, that's right. It's quite yeah. bitter and metallic. That's right. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to do it 
I'm not going to promise I'll do the whole 12 ounces. I, this is two. You, you call for two kidneys. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> oh, you're feeding the whole family. If you do that one, I sent you, you must, you know, you got to. <laughs> I am. I am feeding the whole family. Yeah. And then can you just give me one last question about the steak and kidney pie? Because I struggle. This whole idea of steaming anything besides basically raw vegetables is very foreign to me. I've done a couple of steamed things now. How I, the, the idea of steam and a, and a pastry crust are very, like they don't work together yeah. in my mind because. Right. No. Dry. So it can you get. That, yeah, yeah. So when you put that mix in, it won't, it won't crust up at all. It okay. will just be, it will be like, what can we like? Like a, a sticky toffee pudding. Yeah. 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 That? Yes. That's, that's, yeah. A, yeah mm-hmm. I have made if that actually really for the podcast. Dense, yeah, if you get a really dense, thick, sticky toffee pudding, the, the crust, we call it a crust. Indeed, it isn't a crust. It is like a, it's like just a gorgeous suet, stodgy, just, you know, it's just, you know, it's hard to describe it, but it definitely yeah. isn't a crust. Yeah. It be, I, I, um, yeah. I'm glad you used the word stodgy because that's the only way I could imagine it. But in my mind, like the category for stodgy is it's not, it's not proper so it's yeah. good to know it's yeah, right. it's almost like because it is so fatty also it kind of almost melts in your mouth it does it's like yeah. roly-poly pudding it's just like yeah. my mouth's watering now thinking about it it's yeah a, but it's uh and it doesn't yeah i can i could eat it till the cows come home i'm really good well, I will be making it. I'll let you know how it goes. I am. I have to admit, I'm looking forward to making it. And maybe we'll see. We'll see when I, I mean, it's not going to be easy to find kidney around here. I, I know, I know where I'm going to go to get it, but it's not going to be super easy to find. So really? we'll see what Is they have. Really? Actually, actually, no. And it's not easy to find suet either. I had to go. Yeah. I had to go a couple places to get suet the last time. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering, I'm actually wondering, I think I have some in my freezer, but it's like, oh gosh. That's amazing. Um, it's That's gotta amazing. be like 14 months old if I have it in my freezer. So I'm not sure if I can use it. That would be fine. God, be suet. Fun. Yeah. That's, that's a staple diet for us. Which yeah, yeah. No, for. we like I had never heard of suet before this podcast where somebody gave me a recipe using it. And I, I think amazing. most people in the US haven't heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Well, I've learned something as well there. How cool is that? Brilliant. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's really, it's really fun. So, okay. Well, our hour is, is up. You've been, you've been super, super, super nice. Just tell me the one way I'd like to end is you said, you kind of just said, you know, like there's, there's more challenges to come. So, and, and I, I love, I mean, Paul, it's just such a delight to talk to you for many, many reasons, but one is because you still love what you do so much when a lot of people get totally burnt out, you know? So what is like exciting you? What do you feel like is coming up? What are the new challenges? Well, of course, I'd like America, that's a big challenge for me. Yeah. <laughs> I just started there. So, you know, it's getting getting the message out there. Mm. Um, I'm confident we can do that. And oh, yeah. the other thing is, is we're doing a lot of work over here because so even now I will cook a turkey. I've cooked lots of turkeys. We do shows and I do gigs and demonstrations and that kind of thing. And Every, you know, and then you get average. The turkeys are great. You know, all the turkeys are great. But every now and again, I will find a turkey that is just amazing. Mm. And you think, how can that be when it's come from the same flock and everything? Huh. And of course, the challenge is, is when you get this turkey that is just so different from the rest, that is just amazing. Just not just the taste of the meat, but the stock it produces, how thick the gravy is, the dense. The, huh. And when we're doing, when I do my taste testings, I'm, the first thing I'll ever taste is the fat. You know, huh. the, at the bottom of the bird because our bird because it's so mature will produce an amazing gravy so i'll skim the fat and i'll taste the fat and that will tell me everything 
about that what's going on in the meet. So what's going on in the meet? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. See, and and, yeah. It is. Yeah, and that's another and thing I love. I do love bird. gravy. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. But you'll find this individual bird that's fantastic. The problem is you're eating it, so you really can't breed from it. Right. So that's the challenge. <laughs> that's exactly like as you were talking, I was like, wait, how can you tell if you've eaten it? I know. Yeah. I know. So, you know, if I could have backtracked that six months, I would have actually said, right, you, we're going to keep you. So now we're doing, I'm doing work here now, see if we can find families of different families within our breeding program uh-huh. within our, that, that are carrying those genetic markers that just produce wow. amazing stock, really beautiful meat, um, huh. and just the best turkey possible. So, yeah, you know, that's a, that's a big project, but I'm on it. That's yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Okay, so tell everyone where they can find Kelly Bronze Turkeys in the UK and the US and if they don't live in either of those countries are there options for getting them? Yeah, well, our farm in the our farm in the US is in Crozet, Virginia, but mm-hmm. if you go online we deliver uh we do nationwide delivery now. So you can okay. order the turkey to be and there's a 100% money back guarantee if you don't like it and I want you to email wow. me personally if you don't. Wow. I want to know why. Um, but you've got to follow our cooking and everything about it. So we've got that. We do home delivery anywhere in the US where you can wow. come to the farm in Crozet. The same over here in the UK. We do have people over in Holland and Germany, agents okay. out there that are also selling a few as well. Awesome. But if it's possible, if yeah. you want a Kelly Bronze, and if it is possible, wherever you are in the world, we will try and get you one. Amazing. We even flew one to Dubai two years ago. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Wow. Well, for, for some, yeah. a special dignitary or just someone who... Yes, it was. Wow. It was. It was some of it, you know, they, they, um, they wanted 22 of them actually for, their, for the family. Wow. So it was great. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Paul, I just thank you so much for your time. And um, I can't, no, I can't wait to release this. Yeah. No, we'll be sending you a Kelly Bronze this Thanksgiving. So don't go and buy a turkey. Oh, I mean, my word. <laughs> That'll be amazing. I'll and do I'll, a whole I'll shoot pluck, with it. I'll pluck it myself personally and make sure it is the best you'll ever have. Okay, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I will take lots of photos. Paul, this has been such a joy. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks yes. a lot, Becky. Take care. Have a great evening. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Paul for his time and for this positively delightful interview. If you'd like to learn more about Bronze Turkeys or the Kelly family, I've listed all the ways you can find Paul and his business right there in the show notes. By the way, if you're new to podcasts, well, first of all, thank you for being here. And secondly, the show notes are just those words that are right there in your podcast player. So scroll down through those words and you'll see links to the Kelly Bronze Turkey website and to their social media sites. Next week, you guys, I'm so excited about next week when we start a summer retrospective series. I've invited five former guests to give 30-minute unedited interviews about the way their story has evolved since their first interview. I'm keeping these guests a mystery, but I will say that several were requested specifically by those who subscribe to my newsletter. And in fact, next week's guest was requested by my readers. And here are two things that you probably don't know about her. First, she is the only guest that I have actually hired to help me with this podcast. I'm working with her on a consulting basis this summer. Also, this guest is a minimalist and can fit all of her belongings 
in two and a half suitcases. How does she know this for sure? Because she just packed up for a big move. This is a fast moving, thought provoking 30 minute interview that answers big questions that readers of my newsletter asked, and you will definitely want to tune in. So please make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button right now. As always, please know that I value you, the listener, as the most crucial part of this podcast community. I'm accountable to you first. And so if you have any thoughts or questions, I'd love to hear from you at Becky at the storiedrecipe.com. Also, I depend on you for the growth of this show. So if you liked this episode, the best thing you can do for the podcast is just to forward this episode to a friend or family member. That would mean so much to me. The other great thing you could do for the podcast is to leave a review. Again, if you scroll down right there in those show notes, I've left a super handy little link way down at the bottom where you can do that. You don't have to guess how to leave a review in your player or on your device. Just scroll down to the link that says leave a review here, click and follow the directions. It's easy peasy and it absolutely means the world to me, to the growth of this podcast and to all the guests whose stories you'll be amplifying. In that spirit, I just want to thank a listener from Ireland who left this review. What a beautiful legacy Becky is recording here for all of us to listen to. Very special moments and stories as we travel across many generations and cultures. Definitely inspiring and fascinating. Thank you. That's how I feel about the guests also. And again, if you, the listener, have anything kind to say about this podcast or specifically this episode with Paul, please leave a review right there at that link in the show notes. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.